If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Hello, all of you beautiful people. Welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. It's time for a brand new series. Can you believe it? Yes, it is. We are going to be doing a series on the pillars of the Christian faith. Tackling, yes. Tackling all these pillars that hold up the Christian faith and one by one, knocking them down. It's going to be so much fun, and we're glad you're here for it. My name is Keith, uh, Keith Giles. I am one of your many hosts. Uh, I am the author of the Jesus Un book series, uh, including Jesus Unforsaken, Substituting Divine Wrath with Unrelenting Love, uh, and the final book in the Jesus Un series, Jesus Unarmed, hopefully releasing sometime in November. Um, that one's about how the Prince of Peace disarms our violence. Can't wait to unleash that one. And in this, in this long-running series, I can't wait for a life after the Jesus Un series, that, that'll be coming up soon. All right. Anyway, but I'm joined by my co-hosts, um, Derek, Matt, and Katie. Say hello. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Katie Valentine. I'm the author of Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control. You know, something I hardly ever mentioned, but I think it's time to bring my woo-woo side out and be really explicit because y'all know I'm really, really shy about that all of the time. Uh, but I do have another podcast called Magical Mystical Journeys. So anyone that likes to like, meet angels and go on a little trip with them, uh, check that out too. It's nice, compatible. Um, get your heresy here. Get your woo-woo there. Is it all on all platforms, Katie? All platforms, yes. Thank Good. you for the question. I, yeah. I, I think I think all of us here are serial podcasters. Like we all we all do this one together, but I think we all have two or three others that we do in our spare time because we just love podcasting so much. Yeah, we're podcasting fucking machines. <laughs> And I'm Derek Day, the author of Deconstructing Religion, the blogger of the Love Minus Religion blog on patheos.com, and the founder and host of the Forward Podcast. And you just can't get enough of this stuff. But you know what? Listen, I have a great idea, and I'm really trying to work this thing out, but I have an idea for a new fiction book, Jesus Christ, the Original Vampire. I can't wait to read it. Is it is it going to be like is it going to be like Twilight? No, it's not going to be like Twilight. But Jesus will be kind of sparkly at some point. <laughs> and and and, and I, I think that this will this will cause our our producer and publisher great wailing and gnashing of teeth as he goes through the editing process. Can we have like a Buffy Buffy crossover? There you go. No, it's it's it's. I, I thought about this, and this is actually going to be funny as hell, at least for me, anyway. <laughs> for somebody else, it's it, I, it may lead to death threats and all of that, but that's okay. I'm used to it, anyway. But enough about me. What about Matt? What about me? Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for mentioning. Um, as they say, Derek, your your mileage may vary on on the Jesus vampire, right? I am Matthew DeStefano, and I just want to uh, I want to send all of you lovely listeners uh, to my blog, if you could. I know people still blog. Can you can you believe it? It's 2010. Um, Patheos slash blog slash all set free, and I would love if everyone subscribed there because I'm doing a lot there. And don't tell my boss, but I have a lot of downtime at work. So sometimes I pump out articles at work. But I know she doesn't listen to this show. So I could, I feel like I could say that. 
All right. Way to go. Yes, sir. We got something from Derek? Yeah. How about that? Uh, and you know what? It's amateur hour. <laughs> no, it's heretic happy hour. Don't make oh. me tell you the don't make me tell you the the, the, the number again, Derek. What's Come on the now. God damn it, man. <laughs> anyway, you can reach your favorite heretics by exercising finger dexterity and dialing 240-343-7379. Once again, that's 240-343-7379. And we have a voicemail, so would you please roll that beautiful voicemail footage? Hey, Matt, Keith, Katie, and Derek. This is Adam from Knoxville, Tennessee. Huge fan of the show. And I especially enjoyed the series that y'all did on the parables. Some, you know, really wonderful insights on those from y'all. And the question I have is kind of in relation to that series. There's one particular parable I was kind of hoping y'all would get to. Sadly, it didn't really pan out. But the parable I'm referring to is Luke 16, verses 1 through 13, the parable of the dishonest steward. Now, it's just such a weird story, kind of a head-scratcher, a little difficult to kind of get at what exactly it is that Jesus is saying there, um, because it's in the same passage and likely being spoken to the same audience. You know, I know it has some relation to um, the parable of the rich man Lazarus, which y'all hit a home run on, by the way. But, you know, it's very strange, weird story, kind of hard to make heads or tails of what the point is there. I've, you know, read a different interpretations of it, all of which also agree the story is fucking weird. So, I was wondering, you know, what insights y'all might have into this uh, weird-ass parable. But anyway, uh, like I said, huge fan of the show, really love what you're doing, and uh, definitely looking forward to hearing more from y'all. But Thank y'all very much, and goodbye. <clears throat> All right. Adam, thank you so much. We love those kinds of uh, voicemails. We're so glad you love that series. And I got to say, I did too. I learned a lot in that series, and it really gave me a new appreciation for parables. It really made me go back and look at some of these parables again in a new way. So I'm so sorry we didn't get to that weird-ass parable that you wanted us to. But, you know, we're not done with parables, just so you know. I think our plan, right, guys, is we're going to revisit this parable thing because it was so much fun. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I kind of want to put a pin in that. And I mean, honestly, because right now at this very moment, I don't know that I have a very good answer for that weird ass parable. But uh, but we will, I think, uh, we'll make that the first one to say that. It'll be the first one in our second parable series just for you, Adam. Um, Adam, you don't know how perfect your name is for our topic today. So I'm just going <laughs> to throw that out there as a teaser. Um, yeah. So we all, in the parable series, we all kind of picked like one parable to explore. And I picked the parable of the sower, but it was a toss up between that parable and this one. Um, so it was, I was really close. Um, you're right. It is a super bizarre parable um, that I remember in, um, when I was, a children's coordinator at a church once this came up as one of the parables of the week. And all my Sunday school teachers were like, is Jesus just telling us to lie? Like, what in the world do we do with this? Um, so yeah, I think we will we will probably talk about the next series. So we won't give away the farm right now. I think what I will say is that I think this parable is about what it's um, what it's like to be shrewd and people in the world that have to be shrewd uh, 
which is one of the one of the words you can use to translate the adjective for the for the manager here. But if someone's in a situation in life where they have to be sort of clever in this way, Jesus seems to be pointing that out as kind of a legitimate way to be, especially for people in um, sort of press socioeconomic situations. Now, personally, I think that the the parable says that it's cool to lie to cover your ass. But that's just me. That's a view from my wheelhouse. And of course, as always, your mileage may vary. Uh, But uh, Adam, you get a thousand cool points from me for using an F-bomb in the midst of your voicemail. You are fucking awesome, man. I I got nothing to add uh, except that just going back to thinking about parables, it's um, it, it given how many interpretations there can be, and and all the cool stuff like yeah, like you, Keith. I learned um, in the even just four four. We had four episodes or five. I mean, not that not that many, right? So, just the, how much you can learn, and and so it blows apart the notion that there's like a plain meaning of the text, and when people use that kind of stuff, it's like we talked about four passages for almost four hours total. And we didn't, we learned a lot and didn't come to any like hard conclusions because of how diverse they are. I mean, we have our interpretations and things like that, but it's like the nature of a parable is, I feel like we could probably, we're not going to do this, but we could go back to the same parables and still have more to add. Oh yeah. And that's, what's crazy about like these stories in the Bible. It's like, I just laugh at anyone who thinks it's easy or plain or whatever. It's well, I love, I love parables because it gives me a reason to read my Bible. <laughs> I've pretty much abandoned these days. Hey man, I haven't read the Bible in a hot minute, Derek. So I'm yeah. with you. So yeah. you know the thing—the thing about it too. I'm remembering now, way, way back now, my memories. Uh, that what we did was actually we did. I think each of us chose a parable, so we did four. But then we did a fifth one where we wrote our own parables. That's correct. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and what I loved about that episode was that it it really demonstrated how difficult it is to understand what the meaning of a parable is if you don't have context, if you don't really understand, you know, what the author's intent is and all those things. And I thought that was, that's probably one of my favorite episodes in that series where we, not only did we get to write our own parables, we got to try to understand and decipher each other's parables. And that was really, really a fascinating exercise. Cause honestly, um, I mean, it was a beautiful example. Just, it was like a, a case study for how hard it is really, so, you know, far removed in time, far removed from the culture, far removed from the original person to really try to guess what the hell is being said and just made it even more fascinating to me. So yeah, looking forward to that parable series, um, Adam, coming up soon. And I'll make a request if, if we could do it, if we could write our own again, I think it'd be fun yeah. to do another one like that. I'd like to write another one too. That'd be fun. Oh, yeah. Um, maybe we can write them and then each give our copy to one other person, like a scribe. Yes. Oh. Who may feel compelled to make small edits. Oh, and you know what? Here, here, I like that idea. And what if we also, when we, when we read them, we don't read our own and then people have to guess who wrote that parable. That could be interesting because like, 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 so like we just read it and then we're like, okay, not only try to understand it, but try to figure out which of us wrote it. Or so, even better. Let's say we record it and have someone write it down. 
because that's kind of how it was done in the old days, right? Right. He says it, and then someone writes down what they remember. And you can only listen to it twice. You you have have to do it quick. Yeah, we we can get some real blasphemous eisegesis here. That would be fun. So thank you, Adam, because you have um, successfully planned our next parable series with your uh, uh-huh. with your great question about the unjust steward. And uh, just one, one final thing, I think, for me about the unjust steward, uh, one of the reasons I like it is because it does blow apart like our expectations about what a parable, uh, parable or saying of Jesus or a value like should be. It kind of takes those shoulds and blows them out of the water. Um, so this yeah. is a really, really fun one to explore. Um, so with that, should we go straight from uh, the unjust steward to our heretic of the week? It's the heretic of the week. Hi, my name is Linda, and I have never been called a heretic to my face, but I am quite certain that I have been called a heretic behind my back. <laughs> Hi, Linda. Pardon the unenthusiastic welcome, but we are excited that you are here. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Linda K. Klein. Welcome to the show. What we like to kick off the interview with is the question, why would anyone consider you a heretic? So I had to I had to just, you know, reground myself in heresy for a moment. So um, so before jumping on to meet you while I looked it up. So the definition that I got on um, Google's dictionary was a person believing in or practicing religious heresy, holding an opinion at odds with what is generally accepted. So what's a, what a good question, like what is generally accepted, you know? Um, and I think that in Christianity, this question of whether what I present is the generally accepted view or not kind of depends on where you situate yourself. Uh, I grew up in evangelical Christianity, and certainly within evangelicalism, my belief in women's empowerment and uh, a sexual ethic rooted in values rather than rules and some of those things would be at odds with the uh, the generally accepted view of evangelicalism. Um, but I find that increasingly more and more people are starting to understand just how damaging purity culture, which I talk a lot about, really is for people. Um, and so even though they might consider, you know, my views to be heretical, you know, this idea that people can really, um, you know, live in relationship um, with religion and spirituality and God, you know, with also the freedom <laughs> that I think is is granted by God. Um, I think that they are increasingly understanding that the alternative picture, the picture of purity doesn't work. Yeah, amen to that. I love that you looked up the definition of um, heresy before you came on, because well, it's funny because when we when we first started the show, we're on to uh, we're in the hundreds now. But when our very first episode, we 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 addressed the what is a heretic because if we're going to call ourselves the heretic happy hour, we might, might as well have a definition here. So, I mean, it 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 started as you know a. Uh, one who was divisive, um, mm-hmm. and now it's got, and now it's gotten to be basically, you know, you don't agree with us, and and but you're right. Depending on which group you're associated or affiliated with, someone is you're going to be someone else's heretic, and someone's going to be your heretic. Exactly, <laughs> totally a moving target. Yeah, <laughs> and I think, and I think a moving target 
you know, and I think it, when it comes to the conversation of purity culture, the question of what is heresy is a moving target right now as well as increasingly people are waking up to its overwhelming harmfulness, um, you know, though it still is the dominant teaching. It's still, I, I've been, I've left the church so long ago. Is it still being taught dominantly like it was back in the 90s and 2000s? The rules haven't changed. The, right. the, what has changed is the ways in which the rules are presented, which I actually think is, um, evocative of, of the damage in some ways. Um, you know, when, when purity culture is taught in really, really clear ways, unapologetic, using unapologetic terms. It is now, in a way that it wasn't back in the 90s and the 2000s, early 2000s, clearly problematic. Um, for example, you know, something that would have been taught um, then that is less likely to be taught now um, are object lessons. Now, an object lesson is when you compare a person, usually a girl or a woman, to an object, particularly as it pertains to their sexuality. You are objectifying women and girls. So, for example, in evangelicalism, you'll often find, or certainly during the height of the purity movement, you would often find object lessons where a woman or girl was presented as a an unchewed stick of gum <laughs> or, uh, yeah. or one that's been chewed yeah. up and spit out because, you know, and, and passed from mouth to mouth, or a new bicycle and one that's been rode around the block so many times that now it's all rusty and broken down, or a hamburger that's never been bitten into or one that's been devoured by so many different people and is full of slobbery grossness that nobody wants it now. So these clear objectification teachings, which are clear um, uh, ways to understand the shaming of purity culture. And by shaming, what I mean is to, um, to define somebody as bad, right? You are an unchewed piece of gum that everyone wants to unwrap and eat, or you are a disgusting chewed up piece of gum full of everyone's saliva. That's not what you do, it's who you are. So though in messages like that, it's all stark, it's all clear, it's all crystal clear, right? And it was unapologetic not so long ago. These days, I think that people can't get away with the, um, the very, very obvious uh, presentations anymore. Because the truth is that so many people have been hurt by them that they are identifiable as hurtful. And so now instead, I find that the ethic, which is largely unchanged, just uses softer, sweeter words. But at the end of the day, the shaming message that you, um, you know, if you are deemed impure by the community, are broken, damaged, um, going to struggle to have a healthy life one day, you know, et cetera, uh, that hasn't changed. Yeah, and it's it seems to be reducing. It's it's very gendered, right? I know, I know purity culture um, applies to both men and women, but when it applies to women, it reduces a woman's value to only her sexual purity. Right. Yes, and her and her gender performance. Yeah, because her sexual purity is part of her gender performance. She has to be the. Um, the the perfect woman. She has to be submissive. She has to be uh, a cheerleader for men. <laughs> um, and part of her gender expectation is that she also has to be naive, 
um, and know nothing of sexual things, um, and then be exposed to sexuality by her husband who opens her up to this great new world that she then is becomes ravenous for, um, and then pleases him for the rest of his life. What is some advice that, that you could give people, especially women, because you know, it affects men and women, but really harps on women. Um, for folks who are battling with that, with the trauma that lingers, with the underlying issues that people might not even know are there until they're confronted with things, and then they realize, wow, there's some some deep-seated stuff that I need to work through. Uh, what is some advice on, on uh, that you can give folks? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I think I would say, which isn't advice, um, is that you are not alone. I recently had people who are involved in my work, either because they read my book or they're part of my nonprofit or coaching or something. I sent out a survey to say, you know, what were you feeling before we started doing this work? And then what started, what did you feel that really started to shift things for you? And over and over again, this feeling of I am not alone was the moment in which people woke up, right? It's this, it's this moment where you go from, this is just how I am. I'm just like really screwed up. I'm just really overwhelmed with fear about this. I'm just really broken, whatever it is. It's the moment you go from that to, wait a minute, no, this is something bigger than me. And if this is something bigger than me, you know, if it's affected all these people, then it's outside of me and I can contend with it, right? And I can heal potentially. So, so if people are experiencing, you know, the sexual shame and fear and anxiety, I would tell them they're not alone. If it's living in their body and starting to come out in almost PTSD-like ways, nightmares, you know, fear that even sometimes ranges with paranoia, anxiety that can get so extreme, extreme for some people that it becomes panic attacks, unworthiness that can become so extreme that it turns into self-harm, right? Feelings of unworthiness, that is. You know, if those things are happening, you're not alone, right? If you don't know what you actually feel, if you don't know what you actually think, if you don't know what you actually believe because you've spent so many years trying to feel and think and believe what someone else wanted to, you're not alone. These are all incredibly common experiences for people who are raised in purity culture. Well, Linda, thank you so much for all the work that you do. I love your book, Pure, and I'm sure if people are aware of you, they know that book. But is there anything else that you're working on and where can people find out more and maybe stay up to date with a website or a newsletter or social media or anything? Yeah, I do have a website. So it's my full name, uh, Linda K. Klein, and K is actually my middle name, so K-A-Y.com. And um, yeah, the things that I'm working on right now, uh, I'm doing one-on-one -on -one coaching. I think I'm going to start doing some group coaching. We haven't gotten there yet, um, but stay tuned for that. But one of the things that I've been working on right now is the nonprofit that I run, Break Free Together, uh, which brings people together around this topic of recovery from purity culture and how do we claim our whole selves. 
uh, is doing some really interesting things. We have historically done a bunch of work in person. Uh, we've traveled around the country, even around the world, leading purity culture story exchanges. And uh, community is one of the primary things that people who are raised in um, purity culture are seeking, partially because when you leave, you lose your community. So, um, so these, these community events have been incredibly important. So right now we're in the process of taking that in-person model and developing an online training for people to become hosts of story exchanges that can be in person in your own community. If you are, uh, you know, able to do that, <laughs> we are in the midst of a pandemic, but, uh, but, uh, you know, the majority of them will be online and we can have some new communities form, uh, where people can really sit and be with each other through that. So, so there are these, um, different ways I've been finding to be able to help people to do the kind of deep, uh, the deep deconstruction and reconstruction that's necessary, but also the community building that is imperative. You know, one of the reasons that that uh, I named the nonprofit Break Free Together is because the title of my book has always uh, been a little bit misleading because the title is pure, of course, but the subtitle is inside the evangelical movement that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free. Um, certainly it's misleading a little bit in that many more people have been harmed than just women. Um, and, and though the purity movement is a generation focused, purity ethics have impacted far more people. But the part about it that I'm referring to here is this and how I broke free. Um, you know, I broke free via 16 years of interviews, <laughs> via you know, this process of building my own community from, from, from the ether, you know, <laughs> of people who have been there. And, um, and that is, I think, a really, really important part of the healing process. And so um, Break Free Together is in many ways a more true way of representing how I broke free. Well, fantastic. I would encourage everyone listening to check that out. It sounds awesome. You are doing important work. And so I thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited about all of this. I know the listeners are going to um, jump jump on your site to check it out. Oh, good. Yeah, and you can sign up for the newsletter there, you asked. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not Perfect. very good at sending it out. So I, so you will not be inundated with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. And uh, yeah, be well. Thank you. Well, thank you so much again, Linda. I, I loved Linda's book, Pure. My wife read it. I've gotten friends to read it. So huge shout out to her. And thank you for coming on the show. I don't know if your interview transitions to talking about our topic today, but you know what? Yeah. It probably does. Yeah. Yeah. We can make purity fit everywhere. It goes into every nook and cranny of life. Uh, I don't know. I <laughs> oh, wow. I, I did not expect Katie to be the one to make the joke there. That was does great. It, does, it, does, it, does it actually fill the cracks, Katie? That's <laughs> hey, stay, stay, stay out of my nooks and crannies, please. I'm, I'm very pleased with myself because it doesn't often come to the surface so quickly. You know, I didn't even plan that one. That was brilliant, Katie. Yeah. Brilliant. You're punchy because it's like 2 a.m. where you are, right? That's true. Yeah, it comes with those blessings and banes uh, from new time zones here. Yes. So um, I think it kind of ties in, right? Because she her, she was talking about purity. And our pillar is uh, this idea of original sin, 
And I know that there is a direct line between this, uh, this pillar in Christianity of this idea that the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, which was really, what really happened, were two people that were really standing there next to a real tree, and they ate this real fruit, and that, that whole thing, that's what screwed us all up, was this magical tree that they ate something they shouldn't have eaten. Uh, but anyway, that idea of like original sin, <coughs> right? I think it does play into this assumption that we're inherently evil and we can't trust ourselves and therefore you have to be pure and blah, 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 right? I think it, it, it kind of, without pure, without this original sin idea, you couldn't have purity culture. Hey, I want to be the my pillar guy. Can I be the my pillar guy? Not the my pillow guy. My pillar guy. My on, pillar, man. my pillar guy. Okay. Work, work, work with my pun here, Keith. I, I know. I'm just, I'm trying to explain it for the audience who may not watch, you know, enough oh, Fox God. News to know what you're referring to. Wait a minute. Wait <laughs> a minute. Everybody knows who that guy is. <laughs> like it or not. All I can imagine is you like next to some Greek pillar now hugging it. <laughs> right. Like <Right>. my pillar. <laughs> my pillar. <laughs> this is, uh, this is one of those ones. Uh. I don't know. It's it's a pillar of it's a pillar of Protestantism, at least, right? The mm-hmm. idea of original sin. But I know, I know that no well, Catholicism too. I but, think. Yeah, but they they have a different view. It's it's just one of those things. Like all the different groups have different views, and if you talk, if you include Jews in that those groups, they don't even kind of have the same idea of no. original sin at all. No, and actually, it's fascinating because I I've actually listened to some Jewish rabbis um, giving alternate views. Uh, of, you know, their, by the way, their scriptures, not ours, you know, the, the, a Jewish rabbi giving it some very creative perspective on Adam and Eve. And, uh, like it's not about, you know, a fall into sin and it's not about all the things we assume it is. And uh, that was, it's really refreshing to hear that. And, but, you know, a lot of Christians, evangelical Christians would, would freak out <clears throat> to hear anything other than this idea that this is how sin entered the world and it was the woman's fault because she, you know, she was first deceived by Satan and blah, blah, blah. Well, it, yeah, it's, okay. It's, yeah, it's definitely tied to purity culture. Absolutely. And it's, and it's a very gendered, um, very gendered idea. But it's also tied to this kind of redemption arc narrative that can be really life-giving um, as for Jesus followers, but it has this you know, propensity to be really toxic too, right? We only need redemption if we're so evil, if we're so fallen, um, and that's, we wouldn't, if, if we didn't have, I wonder if we didn't have this original sin idea about us being born bad or depraved, we wouldn't need that redemption uh, narrative so much. And then I'm always like curious, like, what would the Jesus story turn into? What can it turn into um, without some of that underpinning? Oh, what was that? I don't know. No, I like ready? that new. Uh, I like that new soundbite. I'll I'll take yeah. it personally in a good way. <laughs> Sound like uh, one of those toy robots. But anyway, original sin, right? God creates the heaven and the earth, and then He creates man, and He called everything else good. But when He got to man, He said it's very good. So we've got this very good that somehow segues into very bad. Without God actually codifying that, without God actually stating that, yeah, and that—that's something that's always, um, always struck me about the whole original sin thing. And if God, if we're created in the image and the likeness of God, and God calls us very good, 
And he never tells us that we're not his image and likeness and never tells us that we're very bad. Then how did we get here? That's, that's the thing that I've always wondered about the whole original sin thing. I, I get the, the energy that, that, that goes into coming up with something like that. I understand you can look around and say something's kind of fucked up about us. I mean, slavery, war, famines, like not giving a shit about each other. So there's, so there's something there. Of course, you know, Augustine and the way he, you know, came up with an example or, or, or an explanation and Calvin and Calvinists now, I don't think that's correct. But there is something about saying like, I do bristle the people who are like, oh, we're always just perfect. It's like, are you? I'm pretty fucked up sometimes. So I wouldn't want to swing the pendulum too far. Um, so I kind of get where, where the notion of coming up with some explanation of how did we get from good and made in goodness as image to where we are today, where things are a little bit fucked up or a lot bit fucked up. Um, it's just the conversation becomes about the how, not necessarily, uh, you know, or why, why I, I get why there's a why. Yeah. I guess, you know, the thing too, that <clears throat> I agree with you on that, because I think, um, like for me, what I, when I think about it, I guess I think of it like this, like, so there's a primitive culture, right? Think about this, the, this, uh, kind of sort of ancient culture of people, and they are trying to make sense of why the world is so messed up. Or maybe in some ways, what they, what I think maybe they're specifically trying to do is figure out, like, why does, why does this keep happening to, happening to us where we keep, we keep getting taken into slavery by, you know, captivity by these other nations that, that defeat us in battle and take us, take over, you know, make us slaves. And then we have to, you know, get our freedom back again. And then we become a nation again. But then all, then that happens again. It just keeps happening over and over again. And it's sort of like, well, maybe we just keep messing up, right? We're making God angry. And so God is angry and that's why. And, and so there's this pattern. I think N.T. Wright actually talks about this, the idea that the Garden of Eden story, is sort of a metaphor for the Jewish people's like this is like this is like what they keep doing right in their minds like why does this keep happening to us well because the very first person did this and and created this pattern and we just keep repeating it when we're kind of helpless but I think there's also that so I think that's one valid way of like where this sort of originated um, I make Israel trying to figure out how to tell their own story or make sense of their own condition but but at the same time. Um, I mean, I agree with you, Matt, that when you look at, so if you look at nature, right, and you, you can look at nature on one level and see like it's so beautiful, right? The oceans are beautiful, the mountains, Grand Canyon, you know, the sky, like there, and the nature, there's so much beauty in creation. You think, wow, this is a reflection of God and everything is so good and this is what God intended. And yet when you look at nature, you also see like, you know, killer whales eating baby seals and, and, um, like when I watched that documentary on Netflix about the octopus, you know, teacher, you know, you're like, you see these like sharks trying to kill the octopus and all this stuff. And, and you realize like, there's as beautiful as nature is, there's also this really cruel brutality, you know, of one killing another and eating another to survive kind of a thing. And, and when I look at that and I see this cruelty and this brutality in nature, it's like, this can't be God's original plan. This is just too brutal. This is too like cruel. And so there does seem to be, and I don't know even talking about humanity. Of course, humans are cruel as well. Humans kill each other and exploit each other and all that. 
but even at the animal kingdom level, right? There seems to be, there's, there's beauty here. There's something wonderful about it. But at the same time, there's also something dark about it. And, and it seems like we do need a story of some kind. Like I could, I could understand needing or wanting to come up with a story to explain why creation ended up so dark and cruel because it can't be what God originally wanted. Uh, and, and I, you know what I mean? I can at least understand that. Well, you know, in my, um, in my secular career, which I guess that's my only career these days, um, <laughs> is I, I, I really hinge on something called root cause analysis, getting down to the, the root of the why. What, what caused the problem? How can we isolate the problem? And how can we mitigate the problem so that it doesn't happen again? Or if it happens again, it's not so bad. And so when you look at Israel, they're looking at, like you said, Keith, their captivity, all of the things that they had gone through, the wars that they lost. And, uh, and, and they say, well, we're in this situation because we didn't worship God. We turned our face from God. So now we, we have a root cause, but they continue to reverse engineer this and say that something must have fucked up at the beginning. And, and that is, is where all of this leads. But I think, and this is my theory, because, you know, in raising my sons, I grew up getting my ass beat when I messed up. You know, I got cussed at and all of that stuff. And so when, when I was raising my kids, I would raise my voice and I'd spank them because that's what I understood was right. But what I found was when I stopped doing that and I focused on telling them what was right about them, what was good about them, that their self-esteem went up and their behavior correspondingly changed. So, so here's the thing that if people are constantly told that they're sinners, that they're wretched, that they're, they're wicked in every way. If you hear that long enough, you'll begin to believe it. And, and, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And that's, that's the, that's the issue. I, I just think that, that one of the things that we need to do from a faith standpoint now, I think we need to get to the point where we're focusing in on what is good about mankind and, and, and focus it, focus in on that to the point where we begin to shout down the bad. That's, that's my, that's my take. Uh, so I feel like we might be mixing up some of our sources here because I'm noticing that we're talking about the Adam and Eve story as if it is, in fact, reporting original sin. Um, like, just in, just as I'm kind of listening to us talk about it. So I'm, I'm curious, it may be helpful um, if we kind of trace the doctrine, like the origins of the doctrine, and then we can talk a little bit about Genesis um, 1, 2, and 3, if that's, if that's helpful, because I, I don't understand the Genesis story in, this, in the same way. Um, as I don't, I, start, I don't understand it as kind of telling about Israelite Israel's past. It's much older in my, we don't exactly know when it was written, but it's probably predates the exiles and all of that kind of, and deportations and that kind of thing. Um, and so 
let's maybe maybe we can just kind of talk about like where did this come from um who who came up with this idea of original sin i think we're really it sounds like we're really clear on its um damage uh in the Mm -hmm. century since then and then maybe go back and talk about like alternates yeah i don't mean mean, template i don't mean to give the whole template there i'm just kind of like <laughs> I'm no, getting a little good. lost. I'm getting a little lost in the mire. Like it seems like we're assuming that the original story has something to do with original sin, and we're contesting that. Whereas my perspective is the original story has nothing to do at all with sin, right. whatsoever. Okay. Right. No, I agree with you on that because the word sin doesn't appear anywhere in that story. Yeah. Um, and so I know, I know, I do know that. I mean, so if, if that wasn't clear, absolutely, Katie, we do need to stop and and time out. Hey, everybody listening to this podcast, I don't think any of us really believe that that story in Genesis is about original sin. Like, that's not why that story is there. It's not proving original sin. Um, this, and, um, and yeah, original sin was something that came much later. We can talk about that, uh, you know, next, about, like, where it came from. So it, it's one of these doctrines of original sin that came up from in, in Christian circles much later and then gets sort of proof-texted in Genesis to, like, support it. Like, oh, here you go. Here's... Here's where this, you know, this this idea is true. This doctrine of original sin is true because I can point to some verses here and there that kind of support it. But I, I, I agree. I think originally it wasn't there. Well, and it's, it's um, I mean, it, originally, no, I, I think it gets solidified with Augustine in the fourth century. And and the reason we're talking about Adam and Eve is because of, of Romans 5, where he's talking about, uh, Paul's talking about the sin of Adam leading to death, blah, 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 blah. Augustine gets a hold of it, and and then and then that's a doctrine of original sin, and now we can tie that death of Adam back to the Adam and Eve Genesis story. So, but yeah, like we're saying, we're not doing that. That's where it comes from, and maybe it's a little bit before Augustine, but then he like right hammers home the nail of this is the doctrine now, and and so when we read Adam and Eve in our Protestant churches, we go through the Augustine lens without considering that there are a lot of different interpretations that predate Augustine. Yeah. Um, that, that, yeah, predate and, and post-date too. Um, but yeah, it definitely, sure, it definitely yeah. shapes, yeah. yeah, definitely like shapes our understanding of that story. I think where I'm curious is though, like we were, we were talking about the story as if um, it has to do with humans doing something wrong. Right. And that's right. kind of tied into, that's a very, uh, um, forgive me, it's a very Augustinian way of looking at the story. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so like, we're, it's even impacting the way we're assu- it's impacting our assumptions about the story. Right. As well. Yeah. And so, so Augustine, um, so Matt, I love Matt's recap. And then like from there, you know, from the um, fourth century, um, this gets adopted into a lot of Christian theology. Um, and so the idea is that like Christian, I mean, that people are born um, with, sin on their on their soul and then what are the ways that they can work that off so i'm kind of curious like what's everyone what, what was everyone's understanding of that growing up what are the ways you can get rid of original sin well you can't i mean it's only through i mean it's like it's more calvinist so you're either elected to be given the grace of the holy spirit or not uh, of course there, i mean you know there was some free will choice in there but you could choose to have christ as your savior and then you're your original sin is wiped away. I mean, the baptism was a, a part of that, but um, you know, the confession was was primary. Yeah, baptism was like the thing that I grew up with. Like baptism was yeah. the sort of solution. That's your kind of get out of jail really? free card. Yeah, really, baptism. Yeah, that's 
for me, it was always like, you got to pray the prayer. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was like, uh, sin was your, was the universal birth defect that everybody was born with this birth defect and that the only corrective surgery is Jesus. And that was, that was the fix. And so if you, if you accepted the surgery, you got the birth defect corrected and you began to, instead of walking with a limp, you'd walk straight. <laughs> and, but, but you, you'd have to, you have to, like Keith said, pray the prayer. Yeah. So this also, I think, I don't want to get this, I don't, hopefully this doesn't take us off the topic, but I think that idea that, you know, we're also, we're all born in sin. All, all humanity has original sin and because of Adam's sin and blah, blah, blah. But then, but then at least in Southern Baptist Christian circles that I grew up in, there was also this teaching. And it was funny because I just talked to someone about this yesterday at lunch. They brought up this question about like, uh, well, what about this age of accountability, right? There's this thing where if you're a child and if you die, basically before you turn 13, I think it's supposed to be the thing. And by the way, this appears nowhere in the Bible, but this is 13. like 13. I was always like yeah. eight or nine. Oh, really? Oh, wow. See, 13. There's a little latitude there. <laughs> a little more, a little more room to play with. But anyway, what, see, so this is the problem. There is, this is not a Christian, this is not a scriptural doctrine, but yet it is a Christian doctrine, a, a teaching, right? Sort of one of these, um, things that's passed down. And it's, so it's this idea that, yeah, children that die before a certain age of accountability, whatever that happens to be, eight, nine, 13, whatever, um, go straight to heaven, uh, because they have not reached this age of accountability. And, and so th this is the crazy sort of loophole in the original sin story. It doesn't seem to make sense to me. If we're all born with original sin, how is it that doesn't kick in until I turn I don't know, eight, nine, or 13? And so, uh, and so here's the other thing that's crazy, even more crazy about that doctrine, is that if you really believe that, the best thing Christians could do would be to start murdering children before they turn that age of accountability, because then you send them straight to heaven instead of, so they might suffer a little bit here on earth, but they spend eternity in paradise. So wouldn't it be better and more humane if you really believe that's how God works for Christians to just basically, sorry, Johnny, tomorrow's your, you know, your, your 13th birthday and uh, we're going to have a great celebration, but before midnight, we're going to chop your head off. So you go straight <laughs> to heaven. I mean, I, that's that's the logic that we're dealing with here. Yeah, yeah it turns the abortion. It would turn the abortion debate on its head too. That's right. It'd be like it'd be yeah. a good thing. You should yeah. celebrate that those children were aborted because yeah. they're all going straight to heaven. Yeah, I've I I haven't had the guts <laughs> to write that article yet <laughs> write that because it's like, it's like I, I've been wanting to honestly, like because I, I the only reason I don't is because I don't know if people would understand the thought experiment. Right, but it's it's like a really fucked up trolley problem. And yeah. it's like, <laughs> you can make the case that it is much more, if, if eternal torment is true and original sin sends you there, yep. I think you can make the moral case that you should fucking kill babies. That's right. And that's, and that right there is proof that your doctrine is fucked. That yeah. doctrine can get <laughs> honestly. And the reason it's why like, I'd be afraid to write a blog like that, Matt, is that some, some wacko might read it and um, say, oh, shit, he's yep. right. I better start killing kids now. And that's what I'd be, I'd be afraid of that. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, um, that's like the Bechtel test for theology. The Bechtel <laughs> test is yeah. if, ch if children have, if children are better off dead. Right. Um, right. Yeah. It's yeah. about theology. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's, it's like late, late, late term abortion. Yes. I mean, how late can we go then? Cause we can go, we can go as late as 13 apparently or 12. 
uh, and they Did still you, go to heaven. If you guaranteed every everyone would go to heaven, that you can make the fucking case. You really can. All right, Matt, I'm going to write that blog if you don't. I think that's a great blog. Hey, that's hey, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll write it because I, I, have, I don't have near as much to lose as you guys do. <laughs> they, people, people, are, people expect that from me now. So. They've, already, they've already written you off, Derek. Yeah. Yeah. I normally well, want to be sourced, but do not source me in this one. <laughs> well, according okay. to Matthew DiStefano. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we, we had alluded sort of earlier to kind of different different Christian interpretations of original sin. Um, and so the, you know, I, I was also exposed to a lot of Catholicism growing up. I went to Catholic school um, for, for uh, 12 years or so of my life. And so, and the kind of folk, the folk religion of Catholicism, and like the sort of the folk practices have this idea of limbo. So, you know, Catholic babies are baptized usually really small when they're very small. And they're used to, there might still be, but there used to be this sort of rush, like if an infant was born very ill or very sick to like rush to get the priest in to baptize the child because the sort of, Catholic solution to an unbaptized infant couldn't go to heaven, but they certainly weren't going to go to hell because they were not this age of accountability, different words, but the same idea. And so they went to limbo. And so there was this really terrifying portrait for a lot of Catholics I know growing up, especially older Catholics that like dead, dead babies were sort of souls were floating around in limbo, could never go to, could never go to hell, could never go to heaven. Um, either way, but this was never an official Catholic doctrine, but it was taught as if it was. And it's been officially like the Vatican has written, you know, stuff about it. This is not a thing. We don't believe this. We don't practice this, but it's one of those kind of enduring, um, yeah, enduring practices and enduring beliefs that many Catholics thought was being taught. They thought it was official. Yeah. And so, now, you know, I don't know. I don't know about you, yeah. but like when you talk about going to limbo, that I, I picture in my head basically this giant, you know, uh, like Jamaican rum party kind of thing. We're all like, <laughs> how low can you go? Like, how would I go to limbo? That sounds like a lot of fun. It's not hell, but it's not heaven. It sounds like kind of a cool place to just go and have a great time. If you're only watching limbo, maybe if you have to participate <laughs> in limbo, uh, that would be hellish. Oh, it's, all right. It's baby purgatory. Maybe purgatory, I guess. Yes. Yeah, it's it's not purgatory in the sense that you don't, you, you can't ever earn your way up. You're always there? Yeah, Forever. I think like that's part of, like, this is part of the, it was never official and it was sort of taught this way, but it's not, like, it's not purgatory either. It's it's different. Yeah, it's baby purgatory, but it's, um, in purgatory, but, you're being purged in order to be, go to heaven. Yeah. And that is an official Catholic doctrine. It's like if you're if you're made a vampire while you're a child, you never grow up, right? So, yeah, let the right okay. one in. In Same the movie. good in the good place, it's like we're um, there. There's the the middle place, right, where that's neither yeah. good, uh, not the good place, or the bad place, where you always have to drink warm beer. Oh, kind of <laughs> like that. But but so the Europeans would like that because they don't care if it's warm or not, right? They, but it's or you always have frozen warm. yogurt, never ice cream, that kind of thing, right? But but see, yeah. I don't know. It's still I still even the way you're describing it, I guess I'm not getting why it's so bad. It's still a place full of babies. There's just little babies floating around everywhere. That sounds awesome. Like I'd want to hang out in limbo. That sounds yeah. like a lot of fun. Just you know, babies floating around. The new, the new baby smell Is for, it, yes. forever. Oh, you forever. Can, you can't go there. Only unbaptized babies can go there. But it's just but, a bunch of babies with no one to take care of. Them. Babies They're floating just, around. Their babies floating around. They're laughing and googling. That's creepy and, as fuck. Oh, that no. sounds great. Well, <laughs> yeah, but like, 
I'm not getting the horror. I'm sorry. But like older Catholics who had who had children that died unbaptized, it was a haunting. It was a very it was very haunting. Like they would never be reunited with their children. So so there's no indulgences you could pay to like get Uh, your baby out of limbo. No, it's like past the day of indulgences. But I mean, if you're just making it up anyway, just come up with. I would just say, if I was a priest, I'd be like, sure, thirty thousand dollars to get him right out. I think I think the solution was this limbo isn't real. Um, but, right, that's a better but, solution. But you make right. more you make more money the other way, my way. See, yeah, coming up the, the next Keith Giles book, Jesus Unfleeced. <laughs> not, not to divert us too much, but what is the Catholic doctrine on uh, unbaptized babies? Do you know? Um, well, I think that, I think these days it's they're they're go straight to heaven. Straight there to heaven. Go. So why do they baptize them? That's right. Uh, because, well, there's infant baptism in Catholicism. You, there's no kind of, the, you don't have to have this profession of faith or the, the Jesus prayer. So baptism, so this is one of the things I appreciate about, I think about um, Catholicism and about some, um, some parts of Protestantism that baptize infants, although my tradition does not baptize infants, but that they are being baptized really into a community that agrees to raise them, to guide them. Um, so it's not as much about a personal choice as much as a corporate um, declaration. Ah, real pro-life stuff there. Of the child. Hmm. I, I, no, I don't think so much. I don't think so much that. Well, pro-life in the way well, you no, meet it as I mean, a... Uh, you know, the community of raising the child. You know, yeah. that, that, that's, that, that's, that's real pro-life. Right? Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go there, but oh, I went yeah. there. So, so to get us back on topic here, so we're talking about this pillar of original sin, right? And I think we all agree this original sin concept came much, much later in Christian circles, like in the fourth century. Thank you, Augustine, but not, but no, thank you. Um, and so if we're going to reject original sin, you know, it's okay. So if that isn't what we're talking about, what are we talking about? What, what, how should we think about, uh, you know, Genesis and, and, and if it's not original sin, then what is it? So it's like, it's like my favorite passage ever to talk about, right? So I, I've, we spoke about it just not too long ago. I can't remember which episode. Um, and with then, the talking snake. Oh, yeah, yeah, with the talking snake. And then further, uh, a little bit further back, I talked about it some as well. Um, but this, it, you know, I, I love the story of Genesis 2 and 3. And um, Keith, I, I did hear you use a word earlier that I'll... Um, I'll modify in my interpretation, uh, which is primitive. I, I don't think that this is a primitive story or primitive, primitive people. I think this is a very archetypally deep um, and psychologically advanced story um, by an Iron Age people. So by a very different kind of people than we are now. Um, but again, I think this is a story about humans coming into consciousness and realizing that they, in fact, um, are somewhat godlike. And we see that that struggle. They they are becoming um, conscious of their own divinity. They're becoming conscious of their power as humans. Um, I know, right? And so they does, does that mean yeah. they have to have to get reined in at some point? Is that is well, that we, it? We see this. I mean, I think we see the struggle right in the story. Um, God appears very anthropomorphically. God doesn't have omniscience. He doesn't know. Uh, everything that they're doing when God comes to earth, he has to say, why, who told you that you don't have clothes? God doesn't have foreknowledge of the conversation that they're having with the serpent. So I think also we see um, at an archetypal level, I think we see 
humans as who are writing the story, they're also asking the question of what does it mean to have to worship a divinity? Um, is that divinity all powerful? I think those are the kinds of questions that they are asking in this story. Um, yeah, so in the story, we get the limitation of human power uh, by the divinity, which makes us ask more questions about, to me, about the deity, about the divinity, about God uh, in the story. And it's really, this is really about the human perception of God, not about God as God actually is and the way that the story is written. But yeah, I see the story about a story about humans making choices and coming into consciousness about their own power. And part of that power is that we do have the capacity to be violent. We have the capacity to be brutal. We have to kind of reckon with that within the story. But it's not a story about sin. Like, like Keith said, that word never appears in this story. But you know, as soon as they bite into the fruit, they become aware, they become conscious they get new knowledge, they become more like God, right? So, you know, even in the story of our human, of our human journey, um, we don't, uh, you know, we all treasure this like innocent time of childhood, but I don't want to live my whole life as a two-year-old. I want to become more conscious. Um, Yeah, I guess I still, you know, I'm not saying that stories aren't valuable. I guess to me, it's still a story and it's, it's, and it's not my story. I mean, it's a story that some other people somewhere else in another country, in another land, in another, you know, age and time, um, created to make sense of their world and their relationship with God and one another and all that. And I can, I can appreciate it sort of like that from a distance, but I don't, feel like it's my story. And I think that this is my one of my frustrations, I guess, is that I feel like Christians um, Christians act as if it is this documentary story. It really happened. And it's the God said it, but I don't think God said it. I think some other people came up with it on their own. Again, and that's fine. But I think the problem I have with that story mostly is how it's become the only way of thinking about God and hum- and ourselves and humanity and the way we relate to God and one another and all that. It's one way, but I don't think it's the only way. And I, I wouldn't even say it's the best way. Let, let me go full heretic on this. And that that's this. I, I really believe that, like Katie said, the story really has nothing to do with sin, that that it has everything to do with consciousness. And, and, and I also agree with you, Keith, where you said it's not my story, because it's certainly not my story either. But where I'm going to go full heretic is this, that I believe that, like many other things in the Bible, that this story was co-opted for the sole purpose of manipulation and control. That it, that it was there, or, or that it has been abused by the religious establishment to, first of all, establish the patriarchy because you blame and fault the woman for the original yeah, sin. Yeah. And, and then to add insult to injury, basically you're saying that, that because of original sin, we're, we're telling you what the problem is, but we're also selling you the cure. Of course. And that's what I think. That's religion 101. Yep. That's it. It's the pharmacon. It's the pharmacon. It's the uh, it's Pharmacina. the poison and the it's the poison and the antidote, right? Yeah. Yep. Witchcraft. <laughs> well, you know, I I um, sorcery. I think, I, I think it is a cool story though about um, 
See, we do, we have we have sin being mentioned when violence is about to happen in Genesis four, right? Not Genesis two and three. Mm-hmm. So perhaps it is our growing consciousness that gets us to where we can label and identify that something is murder, something is violence, something is is fucked up. And and if we don't take the story literally, it could be like all this stuff was going on before it. Of course. But yeah. but then the the uh, the growing consciousness happened where human beings can look at the, this natural world that does have some fucked up stuff in it and be like, "Oh, that's the problem right there." That's what we can that's what we can call quote unquote sin is when Cain's about to kill Abel, but we we we're not even able to to label it without that expansive consciousness. Like a, like a, a see uh, what what are the fucking orcas the murdering sons of bitches yeah they can't they can't look at what they're doing as far as as we can tell and say oh I'm gonna do it anyway fuck this seal I'm gonna torture it and murder it and get it bad and I know it's evil but I don't think they're labeling things like that but we can look at it because of our growing consciousness and be like that thing's a son of a bitch right there and that's not good that's yeah. that's a sinful orca. Yeah, no, that's what I was saying, you know, at the beginning about this idea of like looking at nature and seeing this cruelty and, and, um, and saying, well, what's, what's up? Like, it's not just us, not just humanity. It's all of nature. Like all of creation seems to have this sort of dark, sort of super selfish, uncompassionate thread running through it. And I get that someone, so, you know, people trying to figure out why, what the hell happened? How did it happen? God couldn't have planned it this way. Um, but whatever. I mean, whether that's what's happening or not, I, I think there is a story there. But, but, the, but the question of defining sin, I guess this is the problem, I think, also with this, this story. When we define sin as, you know, using this Genesis story and original sin and, and carrying this forward then for all of humanity, um, like to me, first of all, I hate focusing on sin. I think that's one of the Christian church's biggest problems is we're constantly the well, religion, you know, in general, but Christianity is always about focusing on your sin. What a wretch, what a worm. I'm such a loser. I can't trust my own thoughts. They're evil all the time. There's no good in me. All that bullshit. I hate that. And all this focus on sin, 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 sin. And I, I would, I just want to say like, screw it, forget it, get over it. Cause I, I think, you know, I, I, if I want to go to something and say, well, how should I approach sin? Like, uh, I want to look at like Second Corinthians five nineteen. God was in Christ, not counting our sins against us, but reconciling the world to Himself. Like God, so I think God is like going, guys, get over this shit, forget the <laughs> sin, drop the sin, for, stop dwelling on the sin. I have forgiven it, forgotten it, cast it as far as east from the west. Move on from sin, get over that, and move on to the positive side of it. Right, the original goodness, this this new pattern that we have, give, we've been given in Christ. Follow that. Love God and love one another. And if you can do that, you're on the right track and stop worrying about all the other crap. Like, I would just want Christianity and Christians in general to move on from this focus, this constant focus on sin and our sinfulness. And then, and then not only that, we're also worried about everybody else's sin. Oh, that's a sin. No, you're, you're sleeping around. You're gay. You're smoking, you're drinking. Like, you know what? Give up on this whole thing by trying to define sin and label everybody else a sinner and what's a sin and what isn't and all this stuff. I'm so sick of it. I would love for us to move on from that. Sorry, I'm off my soapbox. 
That's good. Speaking of moving on, we're going to move on from this podcast and we're going to, we're going to let you find folks move on. But before you do head on over to heretichappyhour.com, check out our merch. If you want to buy a shirt, it's about, it's about that time of season to get Christmas gifts. So what better Christmas gifts than a a lovely uh, pillow, a throw pillow for your, for your couch, um, uh, is hats, a shirt, new books. We have a bookstore of our various heretics of the week, 15% off. Check out heretichappyhour.com today. And when you do that, you get your merch, you take a photo of it, and then you post it in our Facebook group, Heresy After Hours. Um, This is the free Facebook group open to all heretics. Come join it, post your pictures, post your memes, ask your questions. Uh, It's a great supportive community. uh, And so we would love to have you in our uh, corporate Facebook group. Speaking of the Patreon page, <laughs> if you love if you love this podcast, I got to tell you, if you're still listening, you really must love us. So thank you for you're, you're still here. Um, and if you uh, support us on Patreon, we really feel the love over there. Thank you so much for supporting us financially. Um, and there's so many wonderful tiers available there for you guys that support us on Patreon, no matter what level you're at. We love you and we really appreciate you. If you don't yet support the uh, Heretic Happy Hour uh, on Patreon, what the hell's wrong with you? What are you waiting for? Go on over there right now. Patreon.com slash Heretic Happy Hour. Choose a tier. We'll absolve you of your sins and your family. You get a straight ticket to heaven and you unlock all kinds of cool stuff. Bonus interviews, um, extra footage. Just, I mean, it's kind of sick. It's crazy. There's so much great stuff over there. And, uh, and you know what? We would appreciate it. We really would. And we love you so much. Thank you. And if you love this podcast, which I'm sure that you do, you're still here, you're still listening, you obviously love it, you want it, you can't get enough of it, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And just like Father Keith Giles just said, that if you give us a five-star rating on iTunes, that he will grant you absolution of your sins. And you, yes, you. That's right, you, yeah, you, 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 the one listening right there, yeah, right there, you will not go to hell. I, I guarantee it. Or your money back, your money back. Results, results not guaranteed. Oh, no, I guarantee it, your, your, your money back. You will not go to hell. Absolutely. Father Keith says so. If you end up in hell, I want you to just come talk to me, and I'll, I'll straighten it out, Okay. Well, if, if you wind up in hell, look me up because <laughs> that's where I'll, I'll be, be there too, right? <laughs> I'll be right next to you. No <laughs> shit, sorry. Oh, my bad. Whoops. <laughs>